You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Geolocation in support of social distancing, fixing vulnerabilities in a popular teleconferencing service, Twitter bots running an influence campaign against the Turkish government are taken down, a biotech firm reports a ransomware attack, more on attempts to compromise the World Health Organization, and a look at how cyber criminals are faring during the emergency. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, April 3rd, 2020. More companies and governments moved to share geolocation information during the pandemic emergency. In support of enforced social isolation, Google yesterday decided to make location data in the form of mobility reports available to governments, the Wall Street Journal reports. According to France 24, the data is being collected from 131 countries. The University of Toronto's Citizen Lab has taken a look at Zoom's less-than-end-to-end -end encryption, which Citizen Lab characterizes as roll-your-own. There's a strong suggestion in the report that some questionable security decisions were driven by a decision to put speed and ease of use first, with everything else following when and where it could. The lab also points to Zoom's apparent ownership of three companies in China that have a total workforce of 700. They write software for Zoom in a typical labor arbitrage agreement. But Citizen Lab worries that the Chinese connection could expose Zoom to pressure from Beijing. The Canadian University Lab asks, a U.S. company with a Chinese heart? The teleconferencing service is patching vulnerabilities disclosed to it as the company's services see an enormous spike in demand during the COVID-19 emergencies period of enforced social isolation and remote work. The Washington Post says that Zoom's quick response has generally been well-received, even by such normally skeptical critics as the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Errata Security offers some perspective on the bugs, advising users to take sensible security steps and not exaggerate the risk. The Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab reports some 9,000 inauthentic Twitter bots promoting a Saudi and Emirati line against Turkey's activities in Libya. The bots, which Twitter has taken down, also sought to politicize the COVID-19 pandemic. It's not that they're interested, really, in COVID-19. Rather, it's that coronavirus hashtags draw attention. How do you recognize bot activity on Twitter? The Digital Forensic Research Lab points out a few indicators. 
For one thing, the so-called egg avatar, the gray circle enclosing a dark gray oval that stands in for a face, often says bot, especially when the bot masters lack the time, resources, or attention to detail that would be required to put up a stock photo of the account's sock puppet. And repetition of content verbatim is also another tip-off. In this case, the bot masters did somewhat better. Quote, The accounts were posting similar content rather than verbatim or copy-pasted content. The messages had the same political resonance, though. End quote. 10X Genomics, a California biotech firm working on COVID-19 treatments, disclosed in a Form 8K filed Wednesday with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission that it had sustained a ransomware attack. The company says it has restored both access to its data and normal operations, but the attack also involved theft of some unspecified company information. The World Health Organization has said little more about the attempts to compromise staffers' personal email accounts, but it has said it believed the attempts were unsuccessful. Reuters quoted sources who suggested the campaign was run on behalf of Iran, quote, We've seen some targeting by what looks like Iranian government-backed attackers targeting international health organizations, generally via phishing. This was from a source identified as someone at a large technology company that monitors Internet traffic for malicious cyber activity. Reuters also consulted security firm Prevalian, which made no attribution, but which did say they'd captured evidence of compromise suggesting the activity of what they characterize as a sophisticated hacking group. Computing reports the attacks, which appear to have begun in the first week of March, are continuing. In what may be a distinct campaign, the World Health Organization has also been said to be the target of Dark Hotel, a threat actor generally believed to operate from East Asia. Dark Hotel is also said to be at work against targets in Japan and China, with attacks that cybersecurity help and others say exploit Firefox and Internet Explorer vulnerabilities. So how are the criminals doing under the current conditions of pandemic and emergency response? Digital Shadows has been looking over the shoulder of the hoods who chat amongst themselves in their dark web markets, and they've summarized the mood of the underworld, at least in its Russian and English-speaking precincts, as revealed by the chatter. Some of the conclusions are entirely foreseeable, as the emergency cuts brick-and-mortar commerce way back, people are doing much more shopping online, and the criminals see opportunity for carding and other forms of online retail fraud. They're also shifting their direct fraud to follow the market. A number of them see opportunity and demand for face masks, vaccines, and other items people want but can't get. Sometimes it's because the stuff isn't available, like face masks, in some places, or toilet paper in others. Sometimes, as in the case of the vaccines, it's because such things don't exist. And, of course, some of the fraud is familiar snake oil, like the colloidal silver cure-all you may have seen, or that one weird trick that will see you through the coming economic hard times and right on to Easy Street. On the other hand, the gangs are also feeling some economic pain. Opportunities for travel and event fraud have essentially dried up, and the criminals who specialize in these are feeling the pinch. The gangs are also having difficulty completing their theft when it requires an actual physical transfer of goods or cash, as it often does. They depend on drop workers to close those deals, and they're having trouble getting their drop workers to actually work. For one thing, the authorities are a lot more alert to people who are out and about with no evident legitimate purpose. For another, the drop workers themselves are often afraid to leave the house. May the pandemic crash the cybercriminal economy fast and hard. 
faster and harder than any of the damage it's doing to the honest and the hardworking. Yes, that's overly optimistic, but we can hope, right? Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. My guest today is retired four-star Admiral James Stavridis. He served as NATO's Supreme Allied Commander, Europe, and was Dean of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. He's the author of several books, the most recent of which is titled Sailing True North, Ten Admirals and the Voyage of Character. Admiral Stavridis serves on the board of encrypted email and file-sharing firm Prevail, which is how we came to speak with him at the RSA conference. In the mid-70s, I'm in Annapolis, and into my classroom walks uh, Rear Admiral Grace Hopper, amazing Grace, the mother of COBOL. And she's there to tell us about COBOL, this magical way of communicating with uh, a computer. And, of course, we do it with paper punch cards (laughs) to make very simple (laughs) commands. So that's the mid-1970s. Now, flash forward to today, um, at every step of my career, I've seen the deeper and deeper engagement of the Navy and the other services to where we are today, which is, in my view, it is so complex and so central to everything we do that it's time for us to have a cyber force, just like we have an Army, a Navy, an Mm. Air Force, and a Marine Corps I think it's time for a cyber force. So we've come from punch cards and basic as a language and COBOL as a language to a need to create a separate branch of the armed forces because of the inherent complexities of cybersecurity. Hmm. So where, where do you suppose we find ourselves today, taking the temperature of how things are in the DOD and the government sector? Um, what, in your estimation, where do we stand I'll give you good news and bad news, and I'm going to start with the bad news. The bad news is 
in cyber and cybersecurity nationally, we find the greatest mismatch between level of threat and level of preparation. In other words, we worry a lot about Russia, China, Afghanistan, Islamic State, piracy. Those are serious threats, high level of threat, but our level of preparation to deal with it is quite high. In cyber, the level of threat is expanding unbelievably rapidly because the threat surface is expanding. Today, there are 25 billion devices connected to the Internet of Things. By mid-decade, it'll be 50 billion. That's great. I can get out my iPhone and open my garage door from San Francisco. Hmm. The bad news is the threat surface is huge, and we are not moving as rapidly as we should, and offense is outpacing defense, in my view. So I'm concerned. That's the bad news. Here's the good news to the Department of Defense. Um, there's growing awareness. There's growing expertise. We are moving toward the idea of a cyber force. And most recently, and this will sound a little wonky, but it's really important, the Department of Defense is releasing something called the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification. Kind of a mouthful. Mm -hmm. CMMC. What it is, is think of it like karate. It's a series of belts that you have to attain if you're going to do business with the government. So level one is very basic. Think of it as a white belt. You got to know what a phishing attack is. You got to have a basic resiliency plan. You have to be able to uh, coherently reconstitute data. The levels go up to level five. If you want to do serious business with the government, you got to be a level five. That means we're going to force standards on the glad you're sitting down, 300,000 companies who do business with the Department of Defense. That's called mm. the Defense Industrial Base. It's an unregulated zone in terms of cyber. The department is about to regulate it. It's a profoundly good initiative. How do you suppose that transition is, is going to, to play out? Is, and how long is it going to take? Um, it's starting almost immediately um, by early summer, if you want to participate in a request for information, so-called RFI, you have to have the basics put together. By October, if you want to be in an RFP, which is pretty serious uh, request for proposal, that's where you're actually presenting a bid, if you will, to the government. You have to have attained the appropriate level for your organization, its size. And so let me give you an example involving a company that I'm working with called Prevail, which mm. does end-to-end -end encryption. If you want to do business with the government, you're going to have to demonstrate to the government that you can move emails and file attachments that can't be attacked in the server system, which is, of course, what happens now with Gmail or any other uh, broad area uh, messaging or email service. So as we get into this, it's going to happen fast. Companies are going to need solutions quickly. Um, and by the way, Dave, I'll close on this. It has to be not self-certification. It has to be certified by an outside observer. And that outside observer has to be certified by the Department of Defense. So this hmm. is a big change, a big system. There are going to be fits and starts in this. There'll be discontinuities, but it's a move in the right direction.
I have one more question for you. Um, the world that you come from, which is a world of aircraft carriers, of fighter jets, of soldiers, tanks, tanks, all of all of that uh, that that hardware uh, requires large investments. Uh, you know, the best people designing them, operating them. The soldiers that we have uh, trained are second to none. Um, but that is all visible. That is all you can look into the harbor and see an aircraft carrier and there it is and so in terms of expressing our nation's strength globally those things are very easy to see cyber is different and we're in this era where nations who perhaps wouldn't have gotten our attention before for them to stand up a force in the cyber realm doesn't require they don't have to build an aircraft carrier they don't need the capabilities to build a jet fighter Correct. Do you have any insights on that disproportionality? I, I think another way to phrase the question is, if you'll permit me, is do we still need all that massive, old-line, hyper-expensive equipment, or can we, can we do all this with cyber? And uh, unfortunately, I think we're going to continue to need some level of those legacy systems. But here's the mistake people make. They, they tend to think of it as an on and off switch that only has two positions. Hmm. Either, yeah, we just need all that big, beautiful aircraft carriers, or we're just going to do it all with cyber. Think of it more like a rheostat, you know, a, a, like a dimmer in mm -hmm. your uh, mm -hmm. dining room. You got to move the needle. And I think the needle is moving away from those big, expensive legacy platforms and more toward the cyber, and there's two reasons. One is it's, it is less expensive. We need it to defend our systems, and critically, our opponents are doing it. And so mm. we may find ourselves in very contentious situations in the cyber world. We got to be prepared for that. Aircraft carrier is not going to get you there, but there are going to be times when that aircraft carrier comes in pretty handy mm. as well. <laughs> going to need a bit of both. All right. Admiral, thank you so much for joining us. What a us. pleasure. Thanks for doing it. Thank you. All the best. That's retired four-star Admiral James Stavridis. Our thanks to the team at Prevail for coordinating the interview. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Michael Sechrist. He's the chief technologist at Booz Allen Hamilton. Uh, Michael, it's great to have you back. Uh, I just wanted to do a check-in with you as we're all sort of uh, hunkered down uh, dealing with the situation with COVID-19. Um, what sort of insights can you share with us? Uh, what sort of things are on your mind? Well, thank you so much again for having me back. Um, it's, been, uh, it's been a while, but uh, happy to talk to a familiar voice. <laughs> um, so the, uh, you know, obviously, um, this is dominating the news cycle. And when we think about cyber, and we think about cybersecurity, it's basically an extension, really, of physical world activity. And so um, it's no surprise that we're seeing an uptick 
in kind of everything related um, to what's happening out in uh, kind of the pandemic news into, um, you know, cyberspace. And, you know, some of the things that we've generally seen kind of change, I think number one is that it's really becoming difficult to find out what the normal baseline of a company is in terms mm-hmm. of their network activity, in terms of what activity, what should they be expecting from, in terms of, you know, traffic from external sources, what should they be expecting in terms of, uh, you know, basically flows with their bandwidth. In addition, we're seeing a rise in basically all the attack vectors that you would expect that are going to target availability. Um, right. So if you think of the CIA, the CIA triad, the uh, confidentiality, integrity, and availability, availability has become, you know, essential now to the lifeblood of um, kind of the economy to um, just the overall health of corporations. And so as such, you have attackers and, and those who are just want to cause like kind of uh, disruption from the outside wanting to use things like, uh, you know, malware spam, mal spam. Uh, you've got uh, probably you're going to see a rise in business email compromise attacks because it's difficult to get a sense of what, you know, if that if that email address that's asking you to move money is not from your CFO or not from somebody in, in authority, how it's it's a little bit more difficult to kind of arrive at that conclusion now because of everybody working from different addresses, different places remotely. Right. Um, you're seeing a rise in ransomware attacks that are going to try to, again, affect availability. You'll probably see a rise in DDoS attacks. You'll see a rise in attacks that are, are targeting just VPN infrastructure or trying to avoid that because um, of the, uh, the rise in um, connections using VPN. And then also, um, you know, expect that you'll still see nation state, you know, quote unquote, sophisticated APT type attacks that are going to try to blend in with the noise and move during the chaos that is uh, currently facing us. What about this reality that, you know, many organizations have had work from home policies and so they've had procedures in place for that. But I suppose it's fair to say that uh, having such a large percentage of your workforce relying on consumer grade uh, technology, you know, their home Internet connections, uh, that's quite a shift. Yeah, it certainly is. I mean, even when you set up a work from home um, policy for your employees, there are certain specifications that companies and typically require. Uh, usually, you have to have be kind of somewhat segmented off, even internally at your house. Um, you have to kind of have a standard setup, work from home location, and then you have to have, you know, pretty much unfettered internet a- connectivity and, and activity there. Um, you know, both of those can be very challenging right now. Um, not everybody has set those up. Childcare while working is also very difficult. If you're working on very sensitive and confidential activities, you've now kind of potentially put yourself in exposure with others who you're living with uh, a lot more than you previously did. Um, and then you having the unfettered access, right, the Internet access, that is always not the case. And certain um, you're going to see probably certain degraded or downgraded connectivity at times, basically with the, uh, the influx of everybody kind of logging on at, at around maybe your area at the same time, and that can affect your, your abilities to operate. So, right. um, so yeah, there's definitely, it's, it's a much different work from home kind of setup. And, you know, the other thing I would mention here that is, is, is interesting is that, you know, I, I've been a part of a lot of cybersecurity exercises in the past, and, um, I don't think we ever had one or I've ever seen or heard anyone talk about having a fully work from home cybersecurity exercise. 
you know, the other kind of the other kind of thought is, you know, having a cyber a massive cybersecurity event while most of the company is distracted, right? Like, I don't think that is typically something that companies ever have created. And when I say distracted, I mean, what would happen if you know you're you're facing one adversary on one side doing some sort of the activities we described, but then you have another attack kind of unfolding either in this in the background or on on a second front. Having right. like a two front attack is very difficult, and I would consider almost the pandemic and COVID to be one, at least one type of attack. Uh, maybe not obviously deliberately here, but just like something that companies have to focus on while they're also having to maintain potential attacks from other areas. Yeah, no, it's an interesting insight. Well, Michael Seacrest, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Until you use me. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.